0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. On April 29th, 1986, uh, a a large fire consumed uh, 400,000 books and damaged 700,000 more. Investigators descended on the scene, but more than 30 years later, the mystery remains Did someone purposefully set the fire to the library, and if so, who? Weaving her lifelong love of books and reading into an investigation of the fire, best-selling author Susan Orlean tells the broader story of libraries and librarians in her new book called The Library Book. And along the way, she showcases the larger, crucial world that libraries play in our lives, delves into the evolution of libraries across the country and around the world, and introduces us to an unforgettable cast of characters from libraries past and uh, present. The website is Orlean.com. There we learn that uh, Susan Orlean is an author, a staff writer for The New Yorker, a dog owner, a gardener, a parent, a frequent lecturer, speaker, an occasional teacher, a very occasional guest editor, once in a balloon moon, movie inspiration, and a doodler. Uh, she's previously author of The Orchid Thief, Rin Tin Tin, and Saturday Night. Susan Orlean's it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah.
1: Well, thank you for having me on.
0: Uh, it's uh, such a wonderful book, uh, getting a lot of play around the country. I, I think. I think you, you've stirred up some, uh, some great memories of, of all of our childhoods and, uh, and reminding us what libraries, uh, how important they are to us.
1: Well, it seems as if everyone um, can relate to that feeling of discovering a library when they're a kid. And I'm, I'm getting dozens and dozens of emails from readers who are telling me about their experience going to the library when they were a child because that's where I really began the book, talking about visiting the library with my mom and how, how enduring those memories are for me.
0: Uh, this is Cleveland Heights, right?
1: Uh, well, it's a suburb of Cleveland uh-huh. called Shaker. Heights. Oh,
0: Shaker! You shouldn't Shaker Heights, yes. Um, and the right. li- library is pretty close. Uh, tell me about those 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 trips to the library with your mother.
1: What? Well, You know, my family lived, uh, it maybe was not more than a mile from the library. And my parents were both really avid library users. It was something that they grew up doing. And even at the point in their lives where it would have been easy for them to buy books, they they believed in taking books from the library. I went probably two or three times a week with my mother. And she and I had the same routine each and every time when we would go to the library together, where we would show up, walk in the door together, both of us excited about what we were going to find on this particular trip. And then even when I was very small, she let me go off by myself to the kids section we would each head off to the part of the library that we loved the most, and then after a certain amount of time, we would reconnoiter at the checkout desk. And I have memories of, of showing up with a pile of books that was taller than me, you know, to to be checked out. And, you know, we, we would talk about our books on, on the drive home. It was just a very... Um, sweet and memorable kind of time that we would spend together so regularly. It was took on the feel of a ritual, almost, mm-hmm. of heading to the library together and talking about our books on the way home and thinking about which books we were going to read first and talk about how how wonderful the librarians were. And those memories were... It had gotten sort of dormant, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold, um, until I began taking my young son to the library and was r- reminded of how, how really special those trips were and how magical they felt.
0: In the, in, by the way, uh, I understand that uh, as you were <clears throat> writing this book, your, your mother had uh, d- dementia, it Must have been quite yes. poignant to, I guess, try to relive some of those memories and uh, capture them while, while she could still enjoy them with you.
1: Exactly, uh, the book had begun without any idea that that would be happening, and and yet something impelled me to want to think about those memories with my mom and um, and relive them and. Her dementia was diagnosed shortly after I began the book, and then it became almost an urgent feeling of mine. Rather than just purely nostalgic, there was something urgent uh, to, to make those memories permanent in some way, even as she was losing her memory. And, you know, she knew I was doing a book about the library, but very soon she really lost the ability to to understand what I was doing or to remember those trips together.
0: Mm. Uh, you write very poignantly. Uh, I'm I, you know, reading through the book. I'm furiously writing down some lines, of course. And uh, you say, in the library, time is damned up, not just stopped, but saved. In the library, we can live forever. I think we can all resonate with well,
1: that. that. Yes, it, it was... I think um, watching my mother be diminished progressively by her dementia, and unfortunately she passed away before I finished the book. But preserving in the book those stories of our trips to the library made me feel that I had created a a permanent record of something that was really um, had the... Potential to disappear, as it did when her memory vanished. For her, those memories were gone, but they were on the page in a way that made them feel um, indelible. It made me really appreciate that libraries do that for all of us, for, for the vast amount of human knowledge and stories and narratives. They're... They're preserved in the library, no matter what happens to an individual. Mm. It, it lasts forever in the library.
0: I'll throw out to listeners. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, your favorite library memory, uh, you know, past or, or current. Uh, it, it is bound up a lot of us with with family, you know, with parents, with children. Um, my, I'll throw out my, one of my favorites. At a certain point, we'd, when we'd go to the public library, which is just a few blocks away, at, this is eastern Utah and Vernal, but at a certain point, I don't know if, if our family got in trouble not returning a book or something, but, but at a certain point, even though we lived near the library, Dad would pack up the, all the kids in the station wagon. We'd travel out into the, in the countryside and go to the bookmobile. And so my... Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Were you banned
0: from I, I, the? Uh, I don't know. I never did ask my parents about that, but or maybe Dad just preferred to take us out to the bookmobile. But but those are my memories of the not only the library but the bookmobile. But but it, it's the similar memories, right? That the just um, exploring the stacks of books and and wondering what you'll find.
1: Yeah, and and I think that that's part of what makes them such magical places is that feeling that you. You couldn't possibly know what you're going to come across. And when you're a kid, the idea that you can also have whatever you want, um, that it's all free, you know, is very intoxicating for a kid.
0: By the way, um, love the website, com. I'll, I'll plug this. Um, this is, it has some nice touches. For example, uh, current picture of you on the, on the front page here, but if you roll the cursor over it, it's. Uh, I assume this is you, right? Uh, eight or nine years old or something?
1: Yes. <laughs> Black <laughs> and white a wild photo. wild child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looks like you've
0: skinned your knee or something, and uh, you're holding a balloon, although the balloon is out of the frame.
1: Yeah, Right. Um, and I have a look on my face that I can't quite interpret. I don't yeah. remember the moment that that picture was taken. <laughs> uh, but I figured this shows the, um, it gives people a chance to see both versions of me.
0: And then on the banner at the top, uh, some phrases that make it fun. Susan Orlean sees you and raises you 10. Uh, Susan Orlean means well. Susan Orlean speeds up on yellow lights. My favorite, Susan Orlean is no Jack Kennedy
1: yeah <laughs> I wonder how many people will remember what that reference is <laughs> that's right vice presidential debate
0: right yeah yes
1: yeah. yeah i'm now I'm realizing that that may completely miss you know there may be certain people who go to the website. For whom that will have zero meaning altogether.
0: <laughs> It'll be mysterious. Maybe that maybe they'll impel them to go to their library, and look it up.
1: Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: so you uh, you say your 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 parents were big in the library in part because they were I guess they had depression era mentality right. If we can get it for free, if we can borrow it, uh, and then you uh, you say you went off to college and you became an evangelist for owning books.
1: Exactly, and it, it was really interesting because my parents were completely sold on the idea that you didn't need to own books, that you could borrow them at the library, read them, and that was sufficient. You you weren't looking to build a library of your own by buying books. But when I headed off to college, and I suppose it was because I began buying textbooks and having the The library began building itself uh, in my apartment I fell in love with the idea of owning books and then I became absolutely committed to it that I did not want to go to the library I wanted a book when I wanted it and I wanted it to I wanted to have it permanently and I would start getting irritated with my parents when they would say, oh, yeah, we're on hold for that book at the library. And I would say, why don't you just go buy it? And they would sort of wag their fingers at me and say, well, you don't have to buy everything you want. You can take it out at the library. Um, it It was an interesting transition that I think is not that unusual. I think the time period where you often lose your uh, appreciation of the library is when you first have your own home as a young adult and suddenly you want books in your, in your house um, and you want to build your own collection of books. But it really brought me back when my own child was born and I started taking him to the library because with kids it's not just about owning the book it's about showing them a library or going to the story time or letting them explore the the book shelves and find what they find as opposed to just buying a book for them
0: let's take a break when we come back i want to hear about that uh, you, you write very movingly about that uh, first trip to the library in los angeles with your with your son um in fact uh, book's dedicated I think to your mother and your son is that the
1: right yeah, yeah. uh one look back uh, backward and one look forward yeah. I guess is how I pictured it
0: and then at a certain point then you're you're living in Los Angeles and you learn about this fire uh, I had totally missed it as well you say is you went back to the New York Times on that day or the surrounding days and it's it's the lead is Chernobyl right and so it's buried in the back pages
1: right it it had the um weird coincidence of occurring on a day when there was such a dramatic world event that this this event in LA which was a very significant one and a catastrophic one just got pushed to the back of the newspaper for for very good reasons um i hadn't thought about chernobyl in in many, many years. And I was reminded of what a frightening time it was. I mean, nobody really knew what was going to happen and whether we were going to have nuclear fallout in the U.S. So it was a huge distraction and it caused all other news to be shoved aside um, while we waited to see what the outcome was of the Chernobyl disaster.
0: Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about Los Angeles Public Library, the fire and the aftermath. Some very interesting history there as well. Love to get your library memories, uh, past or present. Uh, you can email us to upraccess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. We're talking with best selling author Susan Orlean. She's uh, author of The Orchid Thief and Rin Tin Tin, Saturday Night, and other books. And uh, you can find her at susanorlean.com. The latest book, uh, wonderful book, is called The Library Book. More following this. You're listening to Science by the Slice. Many Utahns have heard of Lake Bonneville, but not as many know about the unique imprint it left on northern Utah and southern Idaho. The ancient Pleistocene Lake, of which the Great Salt Lake is a remnant, covered nearly 32,000 square miles at its peak. In the new online video, Geological Highlights of Cache Valley, USU geologists describe the region's geology, including bathtub rings left by the huge body of water.
1: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at USU.edu slash science. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This week on Live Wire, singer John Craigie
0: shares some of the wisdom he's picked up from the road. One night I was walking through the desert. I heard this guy say to his girl, he was like, honey, let's talk this over when we're sober and not at Burning Man. I was like, whoa, that is the wisest thing I've heard. <laughs>
1: That's this week on LiveWire from PRI.
0: Saturday afternoon at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime, Tom Williams. Our guest is best-selling author Susan Orlean. Uh, the latest book is The Library Book. Uh, in the book, uh, Susan Orlean chronicles a devastating fire at the Los Angeles Public Library that happened in 1986 uh, to showcase the larger, crucial role that libraries play in our lives. It uh, talks about the evolution of libraries, and uh, we'll talk about some unforgettable characters uh, from this book as well. So, Susan Orlean, um, you talk about uh, you. your husband got a job in Los Angeles area, right? So you moved to L.A., and your, right. your son gets an assignment. Uh, he's supposed to interview, uh, what, a public servant, right? You're thinking firefighter or something, and he wants to interview a librarian.
1: Right and I, I it was very funny looking back on it and thinking that I had assumed this was you know my my little boy who was about 5 at the time and I thought well he'll be most interested in talking to a garbage man or a firefighter and he said no he wanted to talk to a librarian and I was very proud. <laughs> I thought, Mike, I, I've done something right, if that's what his interest is.
0: <laughs>
1: we went to the, um, you know, we were very new to L.A. We had just moved. Um, it, it, this was September, and we had just arrived at the beginning of the school year. He he and I had never been to the library Um in in our neighborhood, so we actually had to look up where it was and headed over there. and as we were heading over, I was really reminded of the trips that I had taken with my mother in a way that I hadn't thought about in years. and it was it was a really emotional moment where, he and I walked into the library and I felt as if I were traveling backward in time in a way that was very poignant because, it, you know, it felt, it felt like uh, bringing something back to life that was very, very special, but I just hadn't thought about in, in many years.
0: Did you find yourself um, uh, uh, developing a ritual? You had a ritual with your mother, right? Kind of the same things every time. Did you find that with your son?
1: Um, Well, it was the same distance to travel, and it certainly felt the same in in terms of that moment of walking in together and then each of us heading off in our own direction. It, It was it felt very similar to the, the feeling that I had when I went with my mom.
0: So at a certain point, you learned about the fire uh, there. Um, and in fact, there's an interesting passage in the book. The library director uh, t- tells you, he actually opens up a book and, and inhales, right? He says you can still smell the, smell the smoke in some of these books.
1: Right. I mean, and, and I didn't know what he meant, and I asked him what if if what he meant was that people used to smoke in the library and he looked at me and he said no no from the fire
0: and uh, so I stood there
1: and said fire what fire (laughs) he said the fire the big fire in 1986 and it was I was flabbergasted Um, I had never heard about this I had no idea that such an event had taken place. I knew nothing about it. it. It was really like finding out that a volcano had erupted in LA. It had that quality of seeming like this sort of astonishing disaster that had somehow um, gone without my notice. Mm.
0: Uh, so tell us about you've researched it obviously, uh, and this is uh, this is a, a devastating devastating fire, April 29th, nineteen eighty six. One of these little details that just stands out at you that you that you uncovered uh, on that very morning. One fire, one library official was meeting with a member of the fire department, right, to talk about, well, let's put some sprinklers in.
1: Right. I mean, one of the interesting things is that the building was built in nineteen twenty six. At a time when fire prevention was pretty primitive, there were no sprinkler systems in the building. There weren't even fire doors. Um, It's a historic building, so there had always been a resistance to putting in these ugly fire doors. Um, There was really nothing except for some fire extinguishers here and there to... Halt the any fire that might come to be in the library, but there finally had been an acknowledgement that something had to be done to bring this building into to be you know more protected and 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 have more fire suppression available. And weirdly, not only was there a fire official meeting with the. Um, with the library that day to talk about putting in sprinklers, but they were installing fire doors that day, and it seems like almost too weird of a coincidence, but it happens to be true it It was the moment when the library was finally saying, "All right, we've got to get serious about fire protection."
0: Mm-hmm. So this, uh, and the fire alarm went off routinely, right? People weren't all that alarmed. But this turned out to be uh, an incredibly serious fire.
1: Yes. You know, the fire alarm was old. The system was pretty faulty. It went off all the time. So it, it didn't create panic when the alarm went off that morning. In fact, if anything, it... it um, created a sense of annoyance because people felt like, oh, God, here goes the fire alarm again. And, you know, people left the building very in a very orderly fashion, and nobody really expected anything to come of it. Um, the librarians were just waiting outside impatiently, you know, figuring any minute now the fire department will come and they'll turn off the alarm and we'll go back to the work and it'll be business as usual. The fire department arrived, went through the building, didn't see anything, and went to reset the alarm, but the alarm would not go back to the reset position. It just kept triggering the fire department said, "All right, we're going to do another sweep through the building because this is very weird. We don't see anything, but it is peculiar that we can't get the alarm to be reset." On that second pass through the building, they noticed some smoke. The smoke was very uh, a kind of thin trickle of smoke, but then in a very short amount of time it it kind of exploded. And eventually, the fire raged for seven and a half hours. It, it raised, it, it was gobbling up book after book, and the temperature went up to 2,500 degrees. It was such a hot fire. The firefighters could not be in the building for more than 10 minutes at a time because of the intense heat and the fact that, They were fighting the fire in the stacks, which are very narrow and compressed spaces, very difficult to navigate with a big hose. There was a point where they assumed that the building was going to be a total loss because they were having so much difficulty controlling the fire. When they finally put it out seven and a half hours later, and at that point had engaged just about every firefighter in the city of L.A. They did a a sort of walkthrough of the building and ultimately realized that 400,000 books had been destroyed and 700,000 more were damaged. Hmm.
0: Just devastating. Uh, so you know, some of these volumes can be replaced. I assume were some. I don't know. Were rare. I don't know. But uh, maybe in a, a metaphorical sense, what what is what is lost? Especially we in our in our mindset today of a digital mindset. Well, it's just online, right? Uh, some people might think.
1: Right. Although in 1986, that wasn't the case. Right. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. If things were not digitized and. Not everything is digitized. I mean, it's an important thing for people to realize that there is a lot of material in the world and in libraries that has not yet been digitized. So when they're lost, they're lost. And some of them can be replaced, but a lot of them can't. They're either rare or they're out of print or they were collected over the course of many years. Uh, the, The L.A. Library had... A, an automobile repair manual for every make and model of cars starting with the Model T. So you don't just go and replace that. Mm. It, it's not the sort of thing where you go on Amazon and, and press you know the buy button. It doesn't exist in that form. So a lot of it was never replaced. They had the largest cookbook collection in the United States. Many of those books are out of print. And again, even if they aren't out of print, the process of replacing an entire collection like that, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, Many of these books maybe aren't out of print, but they're from small presses, from um, individual vendors that are not easy to find. You know, I think people think, Oh you just go and get the money and go to Amazon and replace everything but that that's just not what the content of a library is so much more diverse and and broad that you you don't appreciate the fact that the material comes from many many different
0: sources. I think we tend not to think about that, right? We we just go and enjoy the library. We don't think about that those processes.
1: Right, and that was part of what I found very interesting is that I realized that I had used libraries my entire life, but I had no idea of how they gathered their collections or uh, went about processing a new book. You know, just the way, the way they function was a complete mystery to me.
0: You, uh, this quote strikes me. You say, uh, people have been burning libraries for nearly as long as they've been building libraries. Kind of an ongoing struggle. Um, th- this particular mystery has not been solved, or whether someone set this library on fire purposefully. We'll talk a little bit about that, but uh, uh, tell me about this. People have been burning libraries nearly as long as they've been building libraries.
1: I know. It's a sad fact, um, and there, there are two different explanations. One is, Libraries are extremely flammable and they're filled with material that burns so like like a forest like anything that's particularly vulnerable to fire, they've been burning since they've been since they've existed. but libraries also have been targeted in um, in war in oppressive societies where um, material exists that someone in power doesn't want to have available to people. Um, it's been something that's been done since time immemorial. Um, you have a new leader in a country and their books that exist that challenge their authority. They just decide they're going to burn them down. But it's also something... That in modern times um, has been done extensively, and probably the most devastating world event to libraries and books was World War II, where libraries were targeted, particularly by the Nazis, to um, symbolically wipe out other cultures, their their Libraries were burned, and they were specifically sought out and burned, which was purely for symbolism, because there's not a real strategic value in burning a library in war, but there's a psychological value, which is that it's a, it, it incredibly disturbing to people
0: uh you uh you burned a book as part of this uh process uh tell us about that tell tell us first the title That's you
1: ah uh, well it was a, um the title was i think appropriately enough fahrenheit 451 by ray bradbury yeah
0: i nodded my and head when I, I learned that
1: i i had um it it had taken me a lot of time to figure out what book i was going to burn and let me first say the reason i burned a book was I wanted to understand the taboo nature of book burning. I think most of us would agree that it's something that seems really awful to do. Even in a day and age where we can go and replace a book very easily, there is something that makes burning a book feel really wrong. And I was curious to explore that and to understand what and why it felt so wrong. And I also wanted, in a sense, to be able to see what a book looked like burning, because I was going to be writing a description of the fire, and I realized I had never seen a book burn. I'm happy to say I had never seen a book burn. Um, So this was, you know, both research, but also a kind of philosophical exploration to understand why this particular act, which logically shouldn't be that big of a deal, is something that feels really taboo. And it felt very, very strange. I had a lot of trouble bringing myself to do it.
0: And uh, uh, I guess as it was burning, as, after it burned, what's... What did you... A lot of feelings, I imagine. Felt taboo, you said? Felt strange, I guess? It, uh, it un- felt uncomfortable strange. Feeling. It
1: felt... Um, you know, I was sort of rushed with adrenaline because I think that's the nature of doing something that you feel is really wrong. You feel this sort of crazed adrenaline. Um, I was shocked because the book burns so quickly. Uh, it really shocked me. Um. And it made me very sad. Uh, there was just this feeling of someone's words and thoughts being evaporated that, you know, of course, there are more copies of that book. But in that moment, it felt really vivid as if I had erased this, this set story, um, this effort by a writer to tell a story had just been evaporated.
0: And I suppose that feeling you had uh, that, you know, on that small scale, that was writ large in that Los Angeles Public Library fire, devastating 400,000 books lost.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the idea of that much written material being obliterated, and knowing, and, and in the case of the librarians, they knew how much of that was going to be very difficult to replace. Not to mention, wildly expensive. Um, you know, the insurance that the library had covered the, the building, but not the contents. So, the money to replace the books had to be raised. So, it wasn't not only was it not a matter of going to the buy button on Amazon, it was the matter of raising um, $10 million to replace these books. And that's not, that's not an easy thing to do.
0: Hmm. I want to talk just uh, briefly here, uh, then get into some of the characters, uh, fascinating characters in the book, um, including Harry Peake, who was accused of, of this arson. Um, so you write... On the library, on a library shelf, thought progresses in a way that's logical, but it's also dumbfounding, mysterious, irresistible. And I wonder, you know, I've thought, and I'm sure you've thought about this, in today's digital world, there's a lot of conveniences. I I like sometimes the algorithm that produces, you know, the next suggestion of what to read based on what I've read before, but it kind of straightjackets me as well versus... Walking up and down the library shelf, I might be surprised and go off in a direction that i that I might like.
1: right. And I think that that's one of the um, I think you know the the value of a library can't be compared sort of it's it's a little apples and oranges to compare what we have with the internet versus a library. and the experience of walking through a section of the library and letting your eye wander and being surprised by what you encounter is completely different from being online. And as you say, having an algorithm suggests the next book or, um, you know, that that's a very typical thing is it, you know, if you liked this, then you'll like this. And That's a great convenience. Um, I guess my position is they can coexist peacefully, and they provide us with very different experiences, both of which are very uh, enjoyable and... Hello? Uh,
0: Yeah, we lost you for just a second there. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: Um, They're both very enjoyable and, and very different, but... I like the idea that you could both have a book recommended to you by an algorithm, but that you go to the library and wander around and and be surprised and and discover things uh, a little bit more serendipitously.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to hear about a few of these characters. And and, uh, we'll start with Harry Peake. Very interesting character. Uh, he was accused of setting that fire. Uh, I don't believe ever convicted, right? Or I, I'm not sure if he's. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about it. And uh, and then some very interesting librarians that you uh, that you talk about uh, in the book. More with Susan Orlean. The latest book is called The Library Book. More following this.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas in action. Online at UtahHumanities.org.
0: Conductor Francisco Nunez says mentors make all the difference Growing up, so many people were so generous
1: I don't know why, they, were just, they wanted nothing in return They only wanted me to succeed
0: And all I wanted to do is do the same thing Giving back with the Young People's Chorus of New York City On the next Performance Today from APM Tonight
1: at 9 on Utah Public Radio
0: Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with best selling author Susan Orlean. Her latest book, wonderful book, is called The Library Book. She uh, talks about the devastating fire at the Los Angeles Public Library, it happened on April 29th, 1986, and uh, investigates uh, the fire, but also uh, uses that as a jumping off point to discuss libraries, the crucial role libraries play in our lives. Uh, talks about the evolution of libraries and introduces us to, to an unpredictable cast of characters from libraries past and present. You can join this conversation, if you'd like, to our email, upracess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, one uh, very fascinating character in the book, Susan Orlean, is, is Harry Peake, uh, who was uh, accused of, of, this, uh, of this crime. If, if it was a crime, do, do we think it was arson? What, what did the police say?
1: police um and uh, rather the fire department believed that it was arson and were um have been convinced um since almost the very beginning that that it was arson um harry peak was the only suspect that they ever had that they felt strongly about and part of the reason they felt strongly about him was that he told a lot of people that he had started the fire. So that uh, added considerably to his uh, appearance as being a very likely suspect. The thing is, Harry Peake was a great teller of tales and a fibber and somebody who you truly couldn't believe anything he said. So, he, even his confession to having set the fire is not, uh, on it, on the face of it, completely believable. And yet, there were a lot of things that pointed to him as being the person who started the fire. At the same time, he had no particular reason for starting the fire. It, it, it He was not somebody who had a grudge against the library. He... He was not a pyromaniac. There was nothing that really made it seem like he was, that he he would have done it. He was not somebody who had ever done anything like that in his life.
0: Um, What did you, did you come to a conclusion about whether or not he did it?
1: I go back and forth. I have to admit, I'm not trying to be squishy, but there were times where I feel like there was no way that he could have known some of the details he knew. Um, I would say that if he did start the fire, he never intended it to be as big as it was. Um, There's an argument to be made that it was a fire that was accidental from some poor wiring or that the fire started spontaneously not set by an individual and that it wasn't arson. Um, It's not clear, and I guess depending on the day of the week. (laughs) (laughs) If you ask me tomorrow, I may have a very different opinion.
0: Mm -hmm. By the way... um I think this could only happen in LA, 1987. You describe a 24-hour telethon, I like guess raising money for the library. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about this? This is uh, just um, just sounds like uh, like I say, unique. Could only have happened in LA. Yes,
1: yes. Well, they the as I mentioned, the insurance did not cover the cost of the book, so there was a, a movement a committee form called Save the Books that was trying to raise the $10 million needed to rebuild the collection. And a, tel- a telethon was held at a um, a church near the library that was a, a sort of famous televangelist televangel- telev- telev- named Gene Scott who served, as the Master of Ceremonies for the 24-hour telethon, they had celebrities come out, uh, you know, movie actors come out and read from their favorite books. They had the head of the library performing magic tricks. They had, uh, it, it was a crazy, you know, day and night Uh, long event, and Gene Scott, the Reverend Scott, had a band that played Beatles covers through Mm -hmm. the 24 hours, Um, so it was just a wild, wild event that people say was really a memorable event in the history of L.A., which is really saying something, considering Mm -hmm. what kind of stuff happens in L.A., and they succeeded in raising most of the money that they needed. So it, it, as crazy as it was, it was successful.
0: Uh, Henry Kissinger, Zsa Zsa Gabor um, were involved. Charlton Heston read from Moby Dick, apparently.
1: Yes, and uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor came... To read, but forgot to bring a book, <laughs> which which I loved. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, you had uh, Red Buttons and Dinah Shore, and you know, you're talking about the perfect city to do this kind of telethon. And these are people who, while they may not have actively been coming to the library themselves, movie studios use the library all the time, and and it was also a, a you know a popular um, you know civic um, cause to support the library and to support the replacement of all these books. Mm-hmm.
0: You say movie studios use the the library. What is as a, as a backdrop? As a as research? As well? Uh,
1: well, to for research, mm-hmm. it was um, used all the time for researching, particularly period movies to look. For to do research on costumes, on uh, what a, a typical kitchen in 1926 would look like, or, you know, whatever the studios need, they used it for their research. Mm.
0: Uh, I'd like to hear about a, a, a few other characters here. We just have oh, five or six minutes left. Uh, so Mary Jones, 1900, is appointed, what, head librarian? A, and then at a certain point people think, well, should we have a woman at the head here?
1: Well, this was one of my favorite stories in the sense that it was such a a kind of telling experience. Mary Jones uh, was a woman who was trained as a librarian, and she was actually the first head of the library who had training as a librarian. She worked as the city librarian for five years. Everyone felt she had done a great job, and she assumed that she would continue indefinitely. Um, And then she was called into a meeting of the library board five years into her tenure, and they said to her, "Uh, we'd like you to resign. And their explanation was, I think we would all agree that it would be better to have a man run the library, and you know this was early on in the history of um, gender uh, rights, and there was no protection for any any wo- woman in a workplace. Nevertheless, Mary Jones basically said, "That's ridiculous. I'm I'm not resigning. I mean that that is not." a reason for me to lose my job just because you've, you know, I don't agree that it would be better to have a man run the library. And she literally refused to turn over the keys and resign. And there was a standoff that went on for quite some time where the man who had been hired to replace her left town because he didn't want to be involved in this whole uproar And women rallied to support her, and there were thousands of women marching in the streets of Los Angeles in support of Mary Jones and in opposition to this idea that she should give up her job just because somebody decided they'd rather have a man run the library. Sadly, uh, she ultimately lost her effort. Uh, The city attorney ruled that uh, the library could fire anyone for any reason, and they didn't have. There was no protection to to anybody um, in a job. They, if if the board of library commissioners decided to fire someone for whatever reason, religion, gender, they they were entitled to as the law stood at that time. So she finally did leave, and her predecessor, or rather her successor, Charles Lummis, took over the job, and basically said, "Let's not talk about this unpleasant experience and move move forward." And that was the end of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, just incredible. And at, at, uh, there's a large cast of characters uh, that uh, larger than life in the book. We'll we'll need to leave them. When people read the book. Uh, I want to end just a couple of minutes here talking, just uh, pulling back, talking about the library and its place in our lives, you say uh, the the library feels to you like it, it doesn't belong to you, but it feels like it's mine, you say.
1: Right. Well, I think that's what's so special about libraries and something that is unique to them, that most of us feel this tremendous sense of familiarity and comfort and um, we feel welcome at a library. We feel, you know, you're not, it's not like going to City Hall to pay a parking ticket. It's not, it, it's, it's a, a place that feels like we all share it together and that it has nothing but, but opportunity for us. Um, it's, it's a rare place. That makes you feel that you can have your own very intimate experience with it, and yet it's public and that that's a very rare commodity um I can't think of anywhere else that fills me with that same feeling
0: you now that you're out uh, you know doing the book tour and everything you've you've uh, you, you know you've looked back into your own life and uh, done all this history and um I'm sure you're when you meet people talk about the book, uh, they're bringing their own memories. Are they what uh, what 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 stands out to you from what be- people are bringing back to you as they reading the the book?
1: Oh, well, it's just been overwhelming. Um I've gotten so many emails and had so many conversations with people who share that same feeling, especially in relationship to going to the library with their parents. and, how how special that is and i realize that one wonderful thing is you know when you're with a child and you go to a store there's always this drama of the kid wants everything in the store and the parent is saying no you get to pick just one you go to the library and there's none of that tension it's it's all there it's all free it's all available there's a feeling of um, of kind of a kind of harmony that you don't experience elsewhere, and so many people have talked to me about their memory of going with their parents and and how how sort of magical it felt because there was no tension because. <clears throat> there was a sense of exploration and possibility, and it's it's really been very gratifying. Well,
0: that's, that's wonderful. Um, you've, you've stirred up some great memories for me, too. Thank you so much for that. Um, the Library Book is the latest book from Susan Orlean. You can find her at SusanOrlean.com. That uh, book is out uh, now, and uh, Susan Orlean, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah.